I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. If you want to skip the preamble, just fast forward to about 7 minutes 30 seconds. That's where the case begins. I think it needs to be said as well, obviously, we're still in lockdown and my two children are here with us and we now have no opportunity at all to record without them in the house. <laughs> you make it sound like they're dead. They're here with us. They're here with us. The spirits are with us. But you'll hear lots of thumping, lots of noises. <laughs> yeah. Surprised you can't smell one of them. Both, probably. Probably. Both teenagers. Teenagers. Not going out, don't need to wash. No, it doesn't really work like that. I'm, okay. I'm totally on board with it staying in pyjamas. Yep. But clean pyjamas, surely, yeah, after you a shower. Yeah. Anyway, this week we have a non-murdery case. Yay! Yay! I, I say non-murdery, it's not murder-centric. There is death. I'm happy because obviously true crime is, is your passion and I find it all quite scary <laughs> and upsetting. Oh, bless. So it's quite nice to have a non-murdery one. 29 episodes in, first time you've admitted that to me. Really? Yeah. I'm sure I've mentioned it before. Mm, no, I so. <laughs> Maybe you've mentioned it the same way that I've mentioned the Brinks Mac robbery, which you can never remember. Moving swiftly on. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> what have we done this week? I've got glasses. Oh, you have? I say that sitting here with my glasses on so I can actually see the script. <laughs> <laughs> so nice sitting next to you and you're not scrunching your little face up trying to see what's on the massive TV in front of you. Age is so shit. <laughs> Really, or as my mum says, better than the alternative. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Better than not ageing at all. Yes. Yes, and the glasses look fabulous as well. Thank you. Will you get a photo of you up online? No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Sorry. No, I'm, 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 I'm currently not just having my extra winter weight on me, but I've also got a lockdown winter weight on me, so I'm, I'm a bit too fat, really, basically. That's it. She's not too fat. It's quite okay. Too fat. What else have we done this week? Oh, it's been it's lockdown, been... so really, sod all. Yeah. It's been the first full week back at work. First full week or the first week? Just the first Not week even back the first full week, because you were off, and the children were off on Monday. I was the only one out to work on Monday. Oh, here comes a cat. Just here comes a cat. Yeah, so we've warned everyone about the noise that the kid's going to make, but not the noise that Merlin's going to make when he thumps through the door. Morning, mate. We haven't done anything, because we've been locked in. We've watched two films. Dairy Girls. Dairy Girls, both series of Dairy Girls, which we burned through in two nights. It is. And that's about it. We haven't done anything, have we? Life in lockdown is so boring. It's been like a fucking eternity this week. It has. What with working and, I say homeschooling, the kids pretty much, you know, they're older now, so they do pretty much homeschool themselves. But still, I am up and down the stairs about 90 billion times a day on my check on them and take them hot chocolate and Kit Kats. Keep that little strength up. (laughs) Kids are never, ever going to be able to fend for themselves. Yes. I've just realised you'll also hear the uh, dishwasher going in the background. Mm. I think since all this this noise is going on in the background that I can drink my gin while we're actually doing the podcast. Nope. You can drink it, just not while we're recording. Won't mind the slurping noises as well, (laughs) please. Hmm. It really is like that as well. (laughs) It's like you're grateful for every drop of alcohol passing your lips. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've got a few reviews to read out this week. Yes. Firstly, though, we need to say a big, big thank you to Carol Palmer, who signed up to become our first patron at Patreon this week. That's absolutely amazing, Carol, and we love you for it. But, although there are a couple of bits on the Patreon site, there isn't much, and we feel guilty for taking money for so little. 
We've now amended the Patreon site so that you can't sign up for it and we'll reopen it if we ever get to a stage where we feel we can offer something. In the meantime, Carol, Patreon should have refunded your money. If they haven't, email me using the email address that you use on Patreon and I will PayPal you back your money directly, even though you did have access, probably still have access actually, to the few bits and pieces that were up on Patreon. Thank you very much. It was lovely of you, but we are not equipped for Patreon at this point. No. And we love the fact that you like to support us. The easiest way to support us, though, is at the moment, don't give us money as much as we need it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so desperate. It's you fine. do so it's desperate. Fine. That's too desperate. You can leave us reviews, though. That does help us immensely. Yeah, we love a nice review. And so, on to the reviews. Firstly, Gemma B 75 who says, I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and this is one of my favourites, as it doesn't take itself too seriously, nor is it pretentious. Dan and Elaine bring the right mix of light-hearted banter whilst remaining compassionate to the subject. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you. We definitely don't take ourselves too seriously. We definitely don't. <laughs> don't take anything too seriously. Life is too short. Life is too short. Next up is IJCS59, who says, It's about crimes, they're true, and it's sublime. I've become partial to true crime podcasts over the last year, and this is my favourite. In bite-sized episodes, it tackles pretty heavy subject matter, but with an enjoyable mix of, of irreverence, humour and a human touch. I feel as if I know Dan and Elaine as they get me through my daily exercise. Thanks, guys, from Ian Courtney Smith in Cheltenham. Oh, thank you. That's Thanks, lovely. Ian. Glad we bring a smile. Yes. That's what we aim to do. Yes. We also had Rachel Bolsover contact us on Facebook to ask how to leave reviews. You could do that at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. But Rachel also pointed out that she was using Spotify and, well, you can't leave reviews on Spotify yet. Which is really annoying because the vast majority of people who listen, listen on Spotify to us. Absolutely. You can leave reviews at Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Podchaser and Stitcher at the usual place, sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. And you can also leave reviews at Podcast Addict and CastBox. In fact, that's exactly what Rachel did. She went to Podcast Addict and left a review there. Uh, in doing so, that has alerted us to other reviews which we hadn't seen before. So, thank you Rachel. And here goes. Ray C2305, aka Rachel, says, A brilliant podcast, love it. Engaging, brilliant hosts, a must listen for any crime fan, very good research. Dan and Elaine are fantastic. Binge listened and was defo not disappointed. Thank you, Dan and Elaine, for keeping me entertained. Thank you, Rachel. We've also had three more, and these are older ones, so apologies, guys. We had Prado Lover said, Great style and great stories. AK Night 11 said, Sublime True Crime is a great podcast, my new favourite. Highly recommended and a good match for anyone who likes true crime. And Eileen Mac 94 said, Top notch, keep it up. Thank you, guys. That is so lovely. It was really nice to stumble upon those reviews as well. Really was. Lovely. Thank you to everyone. Your five star reviews make us smile every week and we do our best to read them all out on the show. If we ever don't read yours, let us know on the Facebook group or via email and we'll try and track your reviews down. The easiest way to get your review in front of us is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes because they get sent to us. And Dan's very lazy. And Dan's very lazy. <laughs> the link to leave a review once more, sublimetruegrime.com forward slash rate. This week, the case of... Oh, we need a drum roll here. Or that. The case of the Brinks Matt robbery. Elaine, what do you know about this? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. What's that? I've never heard of that. On the 26th of November 1983, in the early hours of the morning, a robbery took place at the Heathrow International Trading Estate in London. This was no small robbery though, as £26 million 
equivalent to 100 million in 2019 worth of gold, bullion, diamonds and cash was stolen from a warehouse. It's better known these days as the Brinks Matt robbery and is a famous case in the UK. Or so I thought. Elaine claims not to know of it. In fact, Elaine has claimed not to know about it several times, even though I am sure that each time she says it, I tell her about it only for her to forget almost immediately. This is possibly true. <laughs> no possibly about it. The amount of times I've mentioned this case and the amount of times you've come up with, what, when, what? I'm surprised you didn't see this week's script and go, Brinks Matt, who's he? <laughs> where's, where's that again? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why. Certain things just don't stick in my brain. I mean, I'm a bugger for doing it on like that. You, you'll be talking to me and I'll suddenly click into focus and realise that you were talking to me and I wasn't listening. And what is it you say? I say, I'm sorry, can you start again? I, was, I forgot to listen. <laughs> forgot to listen is what we get. Sorry, I forgot to listen. Forgot to listen. I'm aware there's noise. It's normally when I'm reading, to be fair. Yes, darling, yeah. <clears throat> just get ignored all the time. Anyway, <laughs> not only was the amount stolen headline-making news... A £2 million reward offered by the insurance company for information made sure that everyone in the UK knew of the robbery, except me. To be fair, we were young. Yeah, what was it, 1983, did you say? Something like that. Yeah, you'd been, what, eight? I mean, I was two years younger, and I knew about it, but, you know, we'll, we'll forget about it. It was local to you, is that what it was? Yeah, but events that happened later on were local to me. Let's put it back in space. Right. Johnson Maté Bankers Limited were the owners of the bullion that was stolen, an event which ultimately played a part in the downfall and collapse of the firm, or the banking and gold trading arm at least, less than a year later on the 30th of September 1984. Now you think that losing £26 million in gold would be the sole reason for a company going under, but this is merely the start of a murky affair. The Bank of England stepped in and took the bank over in order to protect the integrity of the London gold market, and not to prevent the integrity as per my original script. Thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> Johnson Matty Bankers Limited, it turns out, had been making large loans to fraudulent and insolvent firms over the course of several years, alongside serious and unexplained gaps in its records. This led to the fraud squad being called in to investigate the bank, as well as certain bank customers. It also has links to the M25 road rage murder in 1996. Although ultimately two men were convicted, the majority of the gold was never recovered and the insurers, Lloyds of London, paid out for the losses. Onto the story itself. Brinks Matt was a joint venture between Brinks, an American private security and protection company, and the London-based company MAT Transport, which specialised in the transportation of valuable goods. Do you know, it's baffled me for years why it was called the Brinks Matt robbery. I always thought it was a reference to an area near Heathrow or something, which is where it was. Apparently not. That's baffled me at all. I've no, no, it's it. completely right, Archie. <laughs> the plan had been simple. They'd been made aware of an enormous amount of cash, between a million and 3.2 million, depending on who you believe, that was going to be held in cash at the warehouse. The gang of six armed men, dressed as relief security guards, had gained entry to the Brinksmount Warehouse, a small unit on the Heathrow International Trading Estate near Heathrow Airport, in the early hours of the 26th of November. If you're wondering how they managed entry to a place that you'd expect to be like Fort Knox, it was easy. They had a copy of the key and a detailed knowledge of the Fort Knox style security system installed at the site. Once they made their way inside, they gathered the terrified staff together before dragging a single guard to one side. He was handcuffed, had his head covered by a hood and was stripped of his uniform. 
The gang then doused him in petrol and held a gun to his head. They wanted the combination numbers to the vault. A lit match was all it took at that point to get the code. Not fucking surprised. No, I'm not fucking surprised. I wouldn't be holding on to any sort of code at that point. I wouldn't even need to pull a picture over me. No. Again, here you go. I'll open the fucking I thing. Know. Here you go. The guard was said to still suffer nightmares about it decades later. Oh, sod. No surprise. No job's worth it, is it? No. When it gets to that point, just not worth it. One of the staff managed to break his handcuffs and raise the alarm at 8.30am. But if the gang were expecting £3.2 million in cash, the six thieves were in for a shock. Once they gained access to the vault, they found three tonnes of gold bullion, described in one report as 6,800 gold ingots, each the size of a Mars bar. Without going on to rant about shrinkflation, you can guarantee that a Mars bar was much bigger in the early 80s. <laughs> well, gold ingots... I've picked one up, haven't I? You have. In the Bank of England England Museum in London, which if you're ever down that way, it's great fun for like an hour or so, isn't it? It's not a big museum, but it's really good. But in there, you can actually pick up and hold a bar of gold. I remember it being bigger than a Mars bar. I remember it being quite quite chunky chunky and quite difficult to lift. It was really heavy. Yeah. Really heavy. Yeah, well worth a visit if you're ever in London, Bank of England Museum. Definitely. And it's free. Um, the hall also included £12,000 worth of diamonds, two pouches full of traveller's checks, as well as three drums of scrap gold, which are the sweepings up from jewellery making. If I'd have uh, been in a more Christmassy mood when I wrote that, we could have turned it into some kind of five <laughs> gold rings parody. Oh, my God, we could have. We could have done. The total hall was estimated to be worth £26 million. Even the people working in the warehouse weren't aware just how precious the contents of the vaults were. One said, quote... I knew it was run by Brinks Matt, but I didn't realise that there was £26 million in one corner in there, end quote. The gold market suffered first, and within a week of the robbery, the price of gold had risen dramatically. In a twist of irony, the price rise increased the value of the stolen bullion by over a million pounds. Bloody hell. Just two days after the robbery, Ray and Honor Paulston, a couple living in a flat in a converted Georgian mansion in Bath, Somerset, saw one of their new neighbours in his garden. They'd seen him a couple of times in the driveway and they knew that he was in the jewellery trade, a good fit with the barristers, accountants and policemen they had as neighbours already. It was Monday the 28th of November 1983 and the couple had arrived home earlier than normal and they were worried about an unusual noise coming from outside. As Roy Pulston explained, quote, It was around 5pm. We heard this screaming noise like a jet in the woods. I said to our son, go and check what that noise was, will you? When he came back, he said he had seen a hut on Mr Palmer's property with fumes issuing from the roof. He was able to look under the corrugated sheeting and saw a pot, white hot, in the middle of the floor. The first thing I said was, that must be the Brinksmack gold. It had been on the TV. My wife said, your mind's working overtime. But I decided to ring the police, end quote. Once again, I say this. I'm not a criminal, but... If I'd have stolen three tons of bullion in a robbery that was subsequently the lead story in every paper and news bulletin up and down the country, I might just try and be a little bit more careful at hiding any attempt to smelt it. Yeah, well, I think, I say I'm not a criminal, but I think I'd be tempted to kind of bury it for a good year. Yeah. Bury it in the bottom of the garden or something. Forget about it. Yeah. And then deal with it at a later date when the heat was off. (laughs) Or go, do you know what? I'm going to be rich soon. I'm going to find somewhere I can smelt this in a private area. Yeah, hire a warehouse. Yeah, I'm not going to do it in a fucking garden hut. No. 
During his trial, Mr Palmer claimed that he had left the business he had been working for, but continued to do odd jobs for them, including smelting. He is now being sued in the civil courts by Lloyds for recovery of the proceeds of the robbery. Two officers from the Avon and Somerset Constabulary arrived in a panda car and spoke to the Paltons. Panda cars again, they keep coming up. Everyone loves a panda car. They should put little ears on them. <laughs> they should. <laughs> we should have that as our mascot, we should have a little panda car. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Roy suggested they should check out the hut for themselves and they soon found themselves following his son's route through the trees where they found the hut and the crucible. Now, I didn't know that before. A crucible is a pot for melting gold. Did you not? No. Okay. I had to read the crucible of the book at the school, and I hated it. Oh, I loved that book. Oh. Goody Wimple and all the rest of it. Something like that. I've blocked it all from my memory. Anything to do with crucibles, <laughs> whether it's gold smelting pots or snooker places up in Sheffield, it's all gone. As you'd expect, this was unusual behaviour, so the police had every right in their jurisdiction to investigate it further. But no. The police went away and they called the porters later to say that it was just beyond their jurisdiction, even though the hut was just a short distance from the flat. They said they would pass the information on to the police responsible for that area. Whether they did or not is for us to guess. What we can say for certain is that the police didn't go back to the hut immediately to investigate. Why would you not? You've got a tip off from the public. You've got someone in there smelting gold when you've just had a massive gold raid. You'd be straight in there, wouldn't you? Absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? In fact, there has never been an explanation given for the police's failure to follow up immediately after the tip-off. Although, as I said, as the case unfolds, it does become apparent to me that the police seem to be turning a blind eye to a lot of aspects in the case. The premises were eventually raided and the furnace was quickly found. And the amount of time taken between tip-off and raid? 14 months! by which time it was estimated that more than £13 million worth of the bullion had been smelted down and sold on the open market. Bloody hell. Unbelievable. The occupier of the nearby flat and also the owner of the crucible in the hut was a local jeweller and bullion dealer, Mr John Palmer. Mr Palmer, as it happened, was not involved in the jewellery trade, as the Pulstons thought. He was, in fact, a director of a Bristol-based bullion company. Ultimately, Mr and Mrs Pulston were never asked to give a statement to police or to give evidence in court regarding Palmer, who had been quickly arrested and charged with complicity in the robbery. In his defence in court, although he admitted smelting gold, Palmer said that he was unaware that the gold was linked to the Brinks Mat robbery. That's an easy defence, isn't it? He was cleared of all charges, so it clearly worked. <laughs> oh, OK. Nothing so, to do with it. That's fine. Where did, where did you get this £13 million of gold from? Oh, you, you just found it? Oh, OK. OK, because we had that, that was that big, big... Brinks Matt bullion robbery. It's not nothing. No, okay. Maybe it was his own, a director of a Bristol, Bristol-based bullion company. So it was his own gold. Oh, yeah. Unrelated. Could be. Could be. Mm. Perfectly normal. With a £2 million reward for information leading to conviction or recovery of the gold up for grabs by the insurers, Lloyds of London, the Paulsons ended up filing a high court writ against the insurers. In it... They claimed the reward, saying that had their information been acted on promptly, it could have led to recovery of much of the bullion. Which I think is actually accurate. Yeah. The couple now live in the Algarve in Portugal after emigrating not long after the Brinksmack robbery due to Mr Paulston's health. Nothing could sort of the fact that they just uh, dobbed in those criminals to the police. <laughs> You're brave. <laughs> but yeah, I think we should emigrate now. <laughs> yeah. Yes, officer, that hut over there. Book the plane tickets. <clears throat> One of the big myths of the Brinksmack robbery is that the gold stolen was never recovered. It's partially true, 
when a gang of robbers managed to nick three tons of gold that A, they weren't expected to be there, and B, they had no idea how to get rid of, you can see where the myth comes from. The truth is that the vast majority was never found, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a good idea of where most of it ended up. By 1996, it was estimated about half of the stolen gold had found its way back to the legitimate gold market after being melted, mixed with copper and recast. In fact, the BBC claims that some have suggested anyone wearing gold jewellery bought in the UK after 1983 is probably wearing Brinks Matt Gold. <laughs> in the year and a bit that the police spent determining whether they should raid Palmer's shed or not, they made some progress elsewhere. For starters, less than four weeks after the robbery on the 21st of December, the police in Austria arrested five men, four Italians and an Austrian, at a hotel in Vienna. They also recovered 10 of the bullion balls stolen in the Brinksmat robbery. And I'd just like to remind you that it was 6,800 balls that were stolen and they've just recovered 10. 10. <laughs> the robbers did not stay free for long. Their detailed knowledge of the security arrangements alerted the police to the possibility that an insider could be involved. They quickly discovered that Anthony Black, the security guard on duty that night at Brinksmat, was related to Brian Robinson. And the clever way that they not only found out this and linked Robinson to the robbery, well, Black had cracked under investigation and passed his in-law's name to investigating officers. It was Black who was the inside man on the job and the supplier of the entry key and the layout of the place. Robinson was arrested in December 1983 as Black told officers how he'd aided and abetted the robbers by providing them with details of the security measures in place at the warehouse as well as the copy of the keys to the main door. Another member of the gang, Mickey McAvoy, had given his share of the heist to Brian Perry and George Francis. Perry, in turn, brought in Kenneth Noy, an expert in his field, to get rid of the gold. I think that's it, isn't it? That they've, they've suddenly landed this huge amount of gold and they've got no way of getting rid of it. They just yeah. don't have the contacts. Yeah. So they've had to bring in additional people, haven't they, to be able to deal with it. Makes you wonder if they had just left the bullion there and got away with the cash, whether they'd have been okay. Noy helped by melting down the bullion, mixing it with copper coins in order to reduce the quality of gold in order to disguise its origin. Once melted down, the gold was then sold for cash. Yeah, so basically the, the Brinks Mac gold was of such fine quality that it would be instantly recognisable that it was the proper gold bullion. So in order to disguise it, they've melted it, mixed a load of melted copper as well, and then re-solidified it and put it into some sort of a shape, and then they've just sold it on. Yeah, makes, scrap gold. Yeah, makes the gold worth less, but it's easier to get rid of gold that's worth less and get some money for it than pure yes. gold. However, the Bank of England noticed a large amount of money going through a Bristol branch of Barclays Bank in a short period. More than £3 million, in fact. The increased demand for banknotes led to the Treasury being informed, and from there, the police were quickly called in to investigate. Couple of things here. Firstly, Bristol is quite close to Bath, where the uh, Mr. Palmer and his smelting pot was. Do we also need to go into details about money laundering? I think it's probably worth touching upon. Okay, so money laundering is quite simply the process of taking money from criminal activity and doing something to make it legal to use. In this case, as you said, the gold was smelted down, had copper added to it to make it less pure, simply because it would be almost impossible to sell gold that was as pure as the Brinks Mac gold without it easily being identified as a stolen gold, the bastardised gold is then sold. The people buying the gold had no reason to suspect it was stolen. After all, the quality was lower than the Brinks Mac gold, 
It had all been recast in different shapes and sizes, and there was nothing that would prevent Noid selling the gold in much the same way as you, I, or anyone else would do. With the money made from the selling of the gold, which was now legitimate cash that could be sent anywhere, it had now been laundered and could be banked. And Dan's side note, do you know where the term money laundering comes from? Oh, go on. I'm sure we've covered this off before, actually. Apparently, it goes back to the mafia who used to buy up laundrettes and then they'd mix illegal profits made elsewhere and put it through the books of a laundrette. Granted, you pay tax on it, but it makes the money lingual. In inverted commas. Yes. <laughs> um, and laundrettes were chosen because they're cash rich, so you can never tell quite what was going on and, and how they did it. So it's not a case that they put the money inside the laundrette washing machines. <laughs> Make it clean. <laughs> Make it clean and shiny. <laughs> Noy was placed under police surveillance. In January 1985, DC John Fordham was in the garden of Noy's home in West Kingsdown, Kent, on surveillance and searching for evidence linking Noy to the robbery. After discovering the intruder in his garden, Noy killed the police officer. At the resulting trial, he was found not guilty by the jury after pleading self-defence. His self-defence saw him stab the officer ten times. Just a quick pause here because we're now moving on. We're coming back to Kenneth Noy. Okay. Things were starting to come together for detectives who had travelled the world in an effort to unravel what they later described as the most sophisticated money laundering operation they had ever seen. Proceeds of the robbery were found in the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, the British Virgin Islands, the Bahamas, Spain and Florida. Not to mention Bath and Bristol. Yes. <laughs> and presumably uh, Vienna as well. Yes, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Close links were also exposed between British, Italian, French, Spanish and American criminals. Oh, European Union. <laughs> That's what it was there for. <laughs> criminals united. <laughs> One key figure in the money laundering was Gordon Parry. Brian Perry knew of Parry's skills by virtue of the fact that his daughter lived with Parry's son. Harry Perry, you wouldn't need to change your signature much if you married and changed your name in that scenario, would you? God, no. Brian Perry was linked to a South London Turkish Cypriot family named the Arifs, who were involved in serious crimes, including drug smuggling and armed robbery. Perry, alongside solicitor Michael Relton, disposed of at least £7.6 million worth of the proceeds. This was done by transferring large sums offshore via a Bank of Ireland account in South London, more than 170 accounts were said to have been opened on the Isle of Man with the cash. And for those that don't know, the Isle of Man is an island situated between Northern Ireland and England and is a low-tax economy. Despite its placement, it's not part of the UK or the EU and therefore it's used by many companies and individuals to keep tax payments low legally. From there, the money travelled through a series of international accounts, no doubt hard to track when the Isle of Man is outside of UK and EU law, the money ended up in Switzerland and Liechtenstein. Some of the cash was then invested in property in London's Docklands, which was to boom after the mid-1980s, thanks to the massive regeneration of the area which led to Canary Wharf and the new financial heartline we know in London today. Another slice of the money was used to buy a former section of Cheltenham Ladies College, which was then converted into flats for sale. Digging deeper, investigators found one investment that was bought for £1.6 later sold for £8 million. I like that profit. I know. Another property bought for £2.7 million and was sold for £4.25 million. And a third deal sold and sold a property for £1.75 million, which made them a million pound profit when they bought it for three quarters of a million. So far, so good. In fact, so far, so clever. So, 
what happened? It was the choice to buy expensive properties for the wives of the robbers. That's what's happened. Mm. The detectives were tipped off and managed to trace the transactions back to Parry and Relton, or the Midas men, as the two were nicknamed. In July 1988, Relton was jailed for 12 years. Parry managed to escape arrest in South London, driving off as a detective clung desperately to his car until Parry managed to throw him off. Despite going on the run, Parry was later captured in Spain. Perry, that is Brian Perry and not Gordon Parry, was the one who looked after McAvoy and Robinson's interests after they were jailed. When McAvoy offered to help police recover the gold in an effort to get his sentence reduced, he negotiated with them through Perry. I'm not sure that Perry was as innocent and selfless as he sounds, though. He had a sign on his desk which read, Remember the golden rule, whoever has the gold makes the rules. I quite like that, given that he was probably sitting on millions of pounds worth of gold. (laughs) Probably. It wasn't all love, hearts and flowers between McAvoy and Perry, though. Perry bought an expensive house in Biggin Hill, which the inmate suspected he'd used his share of to purchase. In fact, McAvoy sent a letter from prison threatening to kill Perry if he refused to return his share. Isn't all mail sent from prison checked by authorities? Or have I got that wrong? I think it used to be. Maybe they can't now. So either way, why would you put that in writing? Yeah, I would not put that in writing. Brian Perry also stood to get £3 million if Gordon Perry died. Once Gordon Perry was arrested, rumours began to spread that he had informed to the police. As it turned out, he hadn't, but a hit team was sent to kill him while he was in Spanish police custody. Scotland Yard persuaded the Spanish to move Perry. It doesn't explain how Perry would have got £3 million, though. I guess with Perry dead, Perry would have just taken £3 million worth of gold that I guess he was holding for Perry? Presumably so. Maybe they all knew what the same stash was. Seems a bit weird. Mm. Yeah, another name pops up in the investigation too. Jean Savage, who, along with her former lover, John Lloyd, bought Noy's old home for him in 1982 and both knew Perry. Jean Savage would go on to deposit £2.5 million at the Bank of Ireland in Croydon, where Noy had opened an account under a false name. Noy and Savage would make deposits at the bank on alternate days. The money deposited was then transferred to Dublin, where it earned 45 grand per month in interest. Savage didn't touch the money for five years, but when Parry got arrested in Spain, she panicked and tried to move it. Silly cow. Mm. Patrick Clark, a friend of Savage's, was also involved. He banked 3.2 million into a Bank of Ireland account in Finchley, which is North London, along with more than one million pound at a branch in Ilford, in East London. Clark went to America with Lloyd, but returned and was arrested. Why would you return? (laughs) <laughs> probably to get more gold Maybe. more cash in December 1984 McAvoy the man who gave his share to Brian Perry and George Francis got sentenced to 25 years imprisonment for armed robbery Brian Robinson was also jailed for 25 years Black the security guard was sentenced to 6 years another suspect Anthony White was cleared because of a lack of evidence however White who lived in a council house and claimed benefits, had spent over £400,000 buying up and doing up homes in Kent and London. In Spain, police found £115,000 in cash and jewellery worth hundred grand. although it never ever says that White went to jail. Not at all suspicious activity. No, not at all. Obviously just didn't have quite enough proof. Hmm. In 1986, Kenneth Noy was found guilty of conspiracy to handle Brinksmack gold. He was fined £500,000 plus £200,000 costs 
and received a 14-year sentence. He served eight years before being released. George Francis was later murdered. The killer was never caught, although McAvoy was thought to be a suspect. McAvoy made an attempt to strike a deal, asking for a reduced sentence in response to giving back his share of the money. The deal was turned down, seemingly because, by that stage, the money had vanished. In January 1995, the High Court ordered McAvoy to pay £27,488,299, which made him responsible for the entire sum stolen. He was released from prison in 2000. That's a lot of money. Mm. It's not a lot of time, though, is it? No. I suppose because he didn't kill anyone. But let's go back to Noy. Kenneth James Noy was born on the 24th of May 1947, raised in Bexley Heath, which is just down the road from where I grew up. Noy's father ran a post office and his mother was in charge of a dog racing track. We don't know enough about his parents to know whether it's nature or nurture, but his dishonesty began when he was just five, when he was caught stealing money from the till in a branch of Warwoods by his mum, who'd been talking to the shop assistant. Noy attended Bexley Heath Boys Secondary Modern School, which, if you include the girls' school, which it merged with to go on to become Bexley Heath School, includes Delia Smith as an alumni, also alongside former Premier League footballer Andy Townsend. The future criminal, Noy, not Andy Townsend, though anyone who's heard his commentary on the game may disagree, was said to be a bully at the school who ran a protection racket before leaving school at 15. Not that leaving school helped him at all. The young Noy went on to spend a year in Borstal for, amongst other crimes, selling bikes which he'd stolen and then altered in appearance. It was around this time that he met a barrister's legal secretary, who would later become his wife. There's not much more information to say about Noy from then to his involvement with Brinksmat, other than to say that following his arrest for receiving stolen goods in 1977, Noy began a connection with corrupt officers. He also became a police informant, which he kept up for many years. In January 1980, Noy became a Freemason at a lodge in Hammersmith in West London. For those that don't know, in order to be accepted into the Masons, you need to be sponsored by two others. In other words, two men had to vouch for you being an honest and upstanding member of society. Do you have to wear your socks funny as well? Make a funny handshake. <laughs> what was that? It was a funny handshake. <laughs> I think you'll find that the Masons is not a secret society. It's a society with secrets. But yes, there is a bit of that going on. Okay. It's still me. <clears throat> Noy, who listed his occupation as builder, was admitted after being proposed for admission by two police officers. And according to an article that appeared in The Independent in April 2000, the membership of the lodge was made up by a sizable proportion of police. Noy's membership was cancelled in 1987 after he had failed to pay his subscriptions for two years in succession. I guess that a lodge made up of primarily police officers was unaware that Noy had been arrested, tried and sent to prison by that stage. Must have been. That said, he was eventually expelled from the Freemasons when, according to a letter from the Grand Secretary of the United Grand Lodge of England, they discovered that he had a criminal record. Believe it or not, that is a big no-no in the Masons. Not that his criminal record went against him with some of his fellow, or should that be former fellow, Masons. For starters, Noy used his connections within the Met Police to grass up rivals and prevent competition. Clever little bastard. Mm. This gave him space to build up a legitimate haulage business to use as cover. There was also the time he'd been refused planning permission for a mansion on a plot of land that he owned, although he was able to gain consent when he submitted a new application shortly after his bungalow on the same site was destroyed in a fire caused by an electrical fault. Oh, what a shocker. What a shocker. Did you get it? Yeah, I did. That was great. <laughs> 
Despite being acquitted of murder on the grounds of self-defence in December 1985, as we mentioned before, after the jury heard that 11 gold bars from the robbery were found hidden at his home, so that's 21 they found in total, wow. Noy was found guilty in the July of the following year of handling some of the stolen Brinks back gold, along with a conspiracy to evade VAT, oh which my is God. value-added tax. Avoiding the tax man. That's the biggest crime of all. Do you know what it probably is? He got sentenced to 14 years. He got fined £500,000 with £200,000 costs. After serving eight years, he was released from prison in 1994. The cost to of his incarceration? £3 million, which was recovered in a civil action brought by the loss adjusters of Brinks Bank Insurance. Ouch. Noy didn't enjoy his freedom for long, though. In 1996, in a crime that I seem to recall being all over the front pages, Noy was involved in a road rage incident, and I'm pretty sure this was the first time road rage came into common day parlance in the UK. While driving on the M25, 21-year-old Stephen Cameron and his passenger fiancé Daniel Cable, who was just 17, were involved in a minor crash. Their Bedford Rascal van had clipped a Land Rover whilst on a slip road in Swanley, Kent. The driver of the Land Rover was Kenneth Noy. With both vehicles stopped, Noy got out of his car and approached the van. Brandishing a knife, Noy stabbed Stephen, who was unarmed, before fleeing, leaving Stephen dying on the side of the road. Noy left the country and the police search to find him became an international hunt. I should just point out as well, when I've written this, I've put that he left Stephen dying on the road. He killed him. He murdered Stephen. He did die. He did die. And and that's, I think, the reason it was all over the news. Bearing in mind, this was in the area that I grew up as well. Mm. So maybe that's why I remember it. It's just horrendous, well, just to have clipped a car. I mean, people do get angry driving yeah. sometimes, but it's such a minor crash. Uh, ridiculous, horrible. Mm. The police hunt for the killer began in earnest and also in confusion. The early appeals put out by the police said that officers were looking for a man named Anthony Francis. They managed to trace the dark green Land Rover Discovery that had been in the crash and found it had been unloaded in Kyrenia in Cyprus. Why on earth wouldn't you destroy the car? If you're going to go to all that trouble to flee and stuff like that and ship it to Cyprus, you might as well just talk to the bloody thing. Yeah. Finding the car revealed that Anthony Francis was a false identity used by Noy. Noy was eventually tracked down two years later in the resort of Barbate in Spain. He was finally extradited and stood trial in April 2000. He was found guilty by a jury with a majority verdict of 11 to 1 and sentenced to life. You'd think that a man who had cold-bloodedly killed someone would do his best to serve his sentence and move on with his life, wouldn't you? Not annoying. Twice he appealed against his conviction in 2001 and 2004. Twice he was unsuccessful. He didn't stop there. In 2007 he made a legal challenge against the Criminal Cases Review Commission and their decision not to refer his case to the Court of Appeal as legally flawed Yet another challenge followed in 2008, as well as a bid to have his minimum term reduced in 2010, followed by yet another appeal in 2011. All of them were unsuccessful. You just feel for the victim's family. Yeah. You know, because each time that whole appeal process is, is triggered, it's dragged back up again for them. Yeah. Noy's only success was getting moved to lower security prisons. And in fact, as he got near to the end of his sentence... Stephen Cameron's dad wrote to the Mirror and appealed for Noy not to be released. I did not know that. Yeah, and it was an appeal that failed, unfortunately. Mm. On the 6th of June 2019, at the age of 72, Noy was released from prison after serving 20 years for the M25 attack. 
He's now married to Brenda Tremaine, who lives in the East Cornwall town of Lou. They have two sons, one of whom, Brett, was banned from being company director for 21 years for his part in a £2.4 million investor deception scheme involving a rat poison company. So the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree then. Hmm. As for Brink's Matt, it's safe to say that most of the gold has never been fully recovered. As we mentioned before, it's estimated that half of it was smelted and sold back to legitimate dealers, including Johnson Massey, who it had been stolen from. How do you feel? I know. Most of it ended up being recast and sold as expensive jewellery. The remainder, estimated to be around £10 million worth, is said to be buried somewhere and remains undiscovered. Ultimately, thanks to an investigation by private detectives hired by a Lloyd syndicate, property, cash and other assets equivalent to the value of the stolen gold were surrendered after a series of high court judgments. And that is the case of the Brinks Matt robbery. What's Brinks Matt? <laughs> what are your thoughts? I, I find it fascinating that so much money could be stolen and so much gold could be stolen and they just didn't find it. They found 11, no, 21 bars of it out of 6,800. Yep. It's a huge amount. It's a huge amount. And there's still 10 million out there, which must be about 3,000 bars worth. Well, that bloke Palmer who was smelting it in his little shed mm. out in, in a back garden, that can't have been a particularly big furnace or crucible for that sheer volume of gold. It would have no. taken an absolute fucking eternity to melt down that much gold in a small crucible. Because to get the heat, the temperature high enough to be able to, to melt it, mm. You just you couldn't be able to do a large amount at a time, would you? You wouldn't have thought so, would you? I think the whole thing about Brinks Matt is it all revolves around Kenneth Noy. Even though he wasn't involved with the actual robbery, he was certainly involved in getting rid of the gold. He's definitely a wrong one. In all honesty, I can't believe that he's out and free. No. And probably a multi-millionaire. Definitely, I would say. Are you glad that you now know about Brinks Matt? I am. Will you remember any of this? Probably not. <laughs> it's Matt, what's that? What's that? No, I'm, I probably, I will remember it more now. It just wasn't a particularly memorable name, that's all. I do think that you're being Northwest based and me being London and Essex based. London. London. Yeah, maybe it was a bit more, especially with the road rage stuff, the N25, because that was just down the road from where I was. I think I'm dimly aware of the road rage murder, very dimly, but I think you're right, it is a, it's a regional difference. Yeah. It's not such a big deal up here. And the road rage thing happened about the same age that I was, with um, Stephen Cameron and his fiance. Anyway, let us know your thoughts on the case. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review as it helps us to reach more people. If you want to leave us a review, you can do that at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. And we'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. You can also follow us on Twitter. You can find me at DannyUK. And I'm nearly Erica, although I don't tweet very much. Oh, you tweet enough. <laughs> you mainly retweet these days. You do. If you can think of any cases you'd like us to cover, please let us know. You can do that via the Facebook page where you can also join in the chat. Just search for Sublime True Crime on Facebook to find us. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>